Welcome to our Bible class this Wednesday evening. We are in Colossians chapter 1. Our study will resume tonight. Have your Bible ready in Colossians chapter 1, verse 9 will be the place where we will continue. When we come to a passage in the New Testament where the Apostle Paul is expressing his prayer for Christians, we need to pay careful attention to his words of gratitude and to what he wanted for Christians. It is rich and instructive for us. Paul didn't include in these prayers what many people today commonly pray for all the time. And I mean by that, certainly Paul wanted people to be in good health. He wanted them to have food and shelter and clothing and all of that. But in these prayers we discover, for example, here in Colossians chapter 1, Paul is centered in their spiritual welfare. Their spiritual welfare and their advancement as citizens in the kingdom. Paul wanted people to walk worthy of the Lord and he wanted people to increase in their knowledge, spiritual advancement and spiritual welfare is at the very center of what Paul desired for the Christians in Colossae. And we have an opportunity tonight in chapter 1 beginning here at verse 9 to look at a passage and study a passage that has this kind of emphasis. Before we begin, let us pray. Heavenly Father, we pray to Thee through Jesus Christ with thankful hearts and with our desire to be filled with the knowledge of Thy will in all wisdom and spiritual understanding. Help us to be strengthened with all might according to Thy glorious power. In His name we pray. Amen. All right, before I continue with you in Colossians chapter 1, verses 9 to 14, something came up Sunday in the class Sunday morning that I did not handle well. I did not remember carefully and didn't look closely. So I want to be clear. A question came up about this man mentioned in Colossians 1, Epaphras being a fellow prisoner with Paul. That was the inquiry that I had during class. And while that statement is not made in the text in Colossians chapter 1, I did not recall that it is made about Epaphras in the book of Philemon at verse 23. Paul refers to Epaphras <coughs> as his fellow prisoner. So in one of Paul's imprisonments, Epaphras was with him. I did not recall that Sunday until it was called to my attention, so I stand corrected. Colossians 1, 9 through 14. Let's listen, please. I'm reading from the English Standard Version. And so from the day we heard, we have not ceased to pray for you, asking that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will in all spiritual wisdom and understanding, so as to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to Him, bearing fruit in every good work, and increasing in the knowledge of God. May you be strengthened with all power, according to His glorious might, 
for all endurance and patience with joy, giving thanks to the Father who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. He has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved Son, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. A Scottish author, George MacDonald, who lived from 1824 to 1905, wrote this sentence, All growth that is not toward God is decay. Now when you first read that, you may regard that as an exaggeration to make a point. But I think upon further reflection, and given all the Bible teaching that we have about growth, MacDonald was correct. If we are not moving in the right direction toward God, then we're moving in the wrong direction. See, we're moving all the time in life. We are active. The question is, activity in what direction? Either our activity in life is moving us toward God, or we're moving in the other direction. All growth that is not toward God is actually decay. I think he was correct. Every Christian should be personally interested in and committed to growth, to making progress. There ought to be ongoing progress in my life from day to day. So, here in Colossians 1 at verse 9, Paul is with Timothy when this is written, and he says, And so, from the day we heard, we have not ceased to pray for you, asking that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will in all spiritual wisdom and understanding. At the earliest point in Paul and Timothy's knowledge of Christians in Colossae, Paul began to pray for them. And he expresses it this way. He says, from the day we heard, we have not ceased to pray for you. Paul and Timothy prayed for the spiritual growth or the advancement of Christians in Colossae. And it wasn't that they prayed for them once and then said, well, that's enough. Or that they prayed for them occasionally. He said, we do not cease to pray for you. The time never came for Paul and Timothy when they said, okay, that's enough praying for the Colossian Christians. But now observe what they prayed for. Asking that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will in all spiritual wisdom and understanding. Paul wanted them to be filled. I want to talk to you about that word, filled. I found it both interesting and helpful to look up that word Paul used in the Greek language translated filled. And I found the Greek word, and I'm uncertain of the pronunciation, but the word is P-L-E-R-O-T-H-E-T-E. And when I saw that word, immediately what came to mind was a common English word that we use, plethora. 
Maybe you didn't use it this week. But you recall that word plethora, and in our English use of the word today, modern vocabulary, plethora means fullness. It means fullness. However, in this particular context, it is not fullness that is ever finished. Let me explain. If you fill a glass of water, you arrive at a place where you stop. The water level reaches the capacity of the container, so you stop. Our hearts and lives are not made like a container that's limited. So this filling is ongoing. If you fill a glass with water so that you can't get another drop in, that is plethoric. Plethora is also a medical term having to do with fluid that accumulates in a particular place and fills that place. But here the word is fullness, and it's fullness that is never finished. So Paul prayed that Christians might be filled with the knowledge of God's will. And I think this means so involved in filling your heart and life with the will of God, there's no room for anything else because you're constantly being filled with the will of God. So you can't get any human doctrine in there. You can't get a drop of human religion or New Age religion or false doctrine because your mind has a constant receptive flow into it of the will of God. This plethora of God's will in your heart is so abundant, it takes up so much space, so powerful, and that inflow is so consistent, there's no room for anything else. And out of this plethora, there can come progress, growth, advancement. There is spiritual growth moving you closer and closer to God as you persevere. So Paul and Timothy were constantly praying for the saints in Colossae that they might receive this filling, this consistent filling of the knowledge of God's will in all spiritual wisdom and understanding. You may not know a lot of things, yet if you fill your heart and your life with the will of God, you can thrive spiritually. You may not know Hebrew or Greek. You may not have scholarly background in biblical history and archaeology. There may be a whole list of subjects in secular education that you missed or you just didn't like. For me, it was algebra. You may confess your ignorance about computers and cell phones and all the newer technology. You don't have to know everything to thrive as a Christian. What there must be is this constant inflowing of knowledge of the will of God. The presence of God's will inside of you must be so dominant and so constant that nothing else can get in that would take you away from Christ. 
No false doctrine, no worldly lifestyle has room to get in because there's constant flow in your heart and your life of the will of God. Spiritual advancement requires that there is this inflowing, if I may use that terminology, of the knowledge of God's will in your life. There's no growth without it. There can just be no growth without it. And of course, that's one reason you're here. You're here with your Bible in a Bible class. You've, you've thought at some point in your life that you need to be filled with this. And that's one reason you're here. Have you thought of something else you could add to what we've studied so far? Colossians 1 and verse 9. In your daily Bible reading, you are filling yourself with the knowledge of His will. Now, let's talk about the product of that inflowing of the knowledge of God's will in your life. It says next, so as to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to Him, bearing fruit in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God. Often in our Bible studies, I speak to you about sequence, about order, something here and something that comes after it and it's connected. There is a sequence there. And sequencing in Bible reading and Bible study can be very helpful. We can see what's connected with what. And I think that plays out here. This infilling or inflow of the knowledge of God's will must come in order for there to be the walking in a manner worthy of the Lord. So we need to connect filling with the will of God to walking in a manner worthy of the Lord. Those things are connected. You cannot have one without the other. To test out that theory, just ask yourself, can I walk worthy of the Lord if I'm not being filled with the knowledge of His will? And of course you can't. The conclusion is very easy to reach. So the filling must be ongoing from God's will into our hearts and lives in order for us to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord. The plethora is essential in order for there to be this walking worthy of the Lord. Now, look at that figure Paul uses here in many places, walking. Walking here is a figure for living. It's about the daily movement of life. In the Bible, it's often portrayed as one's walk one's life. And the terminology of walking representing life implies choice, motion, and direction. Look at it when you walk. You make a choice that you're going to get up. And following that choice there is motion and that motion takes you in some direction. Well, think of that all now in terms of your relationship with God. You make a choice to obey God. And then you get that choice into motion through obedience. And you make certain that you're walking in His direction to the Lord, toward the Lord, walking worthy 
of the Lord. But in order to walk this way, in order to make that choice and have that motion of obedience and be moving in the right direction, there must be that plethora. You must open your heart, learn the will of God, and have this constant inflow of the will of God into your heart and life. And then I want you to look at that phrase, fully pleasing to Him. Fully pleasing to Him. These few words are a great response to something that you may see all the time that could be called partial or occasional obedience, which really isn't genuine obedience to God if it's partial and occasional. By that I mean there are people who are content to do only part of what they know God wants them to do. They treat the Bible with a collection of, uh, as if it were a collection of options. And they mentally classify the teachings of the Bible that they're willing to engage in, and the others they just leave alone, like you're at Luby's cafeteria. I'll obey this, or I'll take some of this, but I don't want any of that. Well, God, because He is God, is worthy of full obedience. Full obedience, as it says here, fully pleasing Him. All of us should be striving every day in our walk to be fully pleasing to God. And then it says being fruitful in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God. Do you see why I have used so much tonight the terminology of progress and growth? Paul and Timothy prayed that these Christians might be filled with the knowledge of God's will and that this constant inflow of the knowledge of God's will would yield results in their lives, being fruitful in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God. Now, I need to pause here and make a very important point. This is clarification of everything I've said up to this point. It does great violence to the text of Scripture when someone turns this prayer into a promise to passive recipients. Let me explain. If someone says, will you pray for me? that I might be filled with the knowledge of God's will. If somebody says to you, will you pray for me that I will be filled with the knowledge of God's will, but they're passive in regard to the will of God, the person does nothing, sits back to passively uh, think that they're going to receive knowledge, not reading God's word, no mental effort exerted to study and make self-application. They just want this feeling to sort of happen because somebody prayed for them. That idea does great violence to the text of Scripture because the Bible always calls upon us to be active recipients of the will of God. Active recipients of the will of God. So you'll need one of these and you'll need to open it and you'll need to read it, and you'll need to read it accompanied by good self-examination, and then you'll need to be engaged in the walk. 
walking in a manner worthy of the Lord. So the idea here is not that the Colossian Christians would say, well, we'll be fine because Paul is an apostle of Christ and Timothy is his evangelistic associate and they're praying for us. No, at the end of this epistle, Paul said, you need to read what I've written. And he said, you need to also transfer it over to the church at Laodicea and let them read it. And when Paul wrote to the Ephesians, he said, read what I've written. So there is effort and energy and commitment on the part of the person being prayed for that they might walk worthy of the Lord. Prayers like this are never intended to confer blessings on lazy, uncommitted people. So, I doubt any of you had that thought, but in case you encounter it, the plethora that Paul prayed for them, this inflow of the will of God that would enable them to walk worthy of the Lord, that does not assume that the people prayed for are passive recipients. To the contrary, it assumes what the Bible teaches everywhere, that we must be ready to listen and read and learn and use God's will in our lives. Well... Here we are, and uh, we've covered two verses. Anything you'd like to add before we continue? If I'm filling myself with the will of God, and that's a constant inflow, and I'm doing that with such measure that there's room for nothing else to get in, so I'm advancing, and I'm walking in a manner worthy of the Lord, verse 11 says... I am strengthened with all power according to his glorious might for all endurance and patience and joy. I've said to you many times in Bible classes and in sermons, when you see something in the text of Scripture that is attractive and that you need, look back in the text and see what you need to do to have it. So, you see anything in verse 11 that you need? Well, let's see. There's strength and power and endurance and patience and joy. You see anything there you need? I need every bit of that. I need every bit of that. So then I look back in the text and see what I need to do to have these things in verse 11. The strength and the power and endurance and patience and joy. And it goes right back to that constant inflow of the knowledge of the will of God that enables me to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord. Let me add this. Have you ever had a moment of sudden crisis? And one thought you had was, I'm not ready for this. I wasn't prepared for this. I should have been better prepared for this crisis or this battle or this episode of temptation. This passage is telling us if we want God's power and strength and patience and joy in the future, then what we've got to do is be filled with the knowledge of God's will now. We've got to be engaged in this inflow of the will of God now so that our consistent manner of life before the crisis is that we're walking worthy of the Lord. And we're growing. See, the benefits don't just come into your life because someone prayed for you. Somebody prayed for you and said, 
give Warren patience and endurance and strength and joy. And I say, okay, I'm waiting. No, I've got to be involved in that. I've got to be active in that. And it's going to involve my contact with the written will of God that I have. Verse 12, giving thanks to the Father who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. I mention this a lot. In our obedience to the gospel, we are receivers. We are receivers of what God offers. When I am baptized into Christ, I'm a receiver of what God offers, forgiveness of sin, mentioned in the text. As I continue to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, I continue to be a receiver. A receiver of what? Well, a receiver of strength and power and endurance and patience with joy. So I'm a receiver. And one example of what God offers to us and does for us, it says he has qualified you to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. I didn't qualify myself for this all by myself without God. God qualified me, and God qualifies those who have and display the activity of faith. Have you ever had someone write your name in their will? And what do you do, or what do you say or think when the proceeds are received? You're in an attorney's office or probate court or whatever. Do you say, well, it's about time they died, I worked for this? Generally not. Generally not. You're thankful to have been remembered. And you do not consider that you have earned what you received. You're a receiver of an inheritance, not a paycheck for work done. God, because of what Christ did, took us out of sin when we obeyed the gospel. And it's expressed in this manner here. He delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son. And then it says, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. The idea behind the word redeem is to buy out of. To buy out of. Somebody is in bondage slavery and a ransom price is set the price is paid you were bought out of that bondage or slavery well think of what happened when you responded to the gospel of Christ God through Christ satisfied the ransom so that you can come out of sin and live in righteousness. In whom? And you remember that prepositional phrase, right? In whom? In Christ. We have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. To have a life that is growing and advancing and moving closer to God, there must be this constant inflow of the knowledge of His will. And then with that inflow, we can walk in a manner worthy of the Lord and we can have the benefits identified, strengthened with all power according to his glorious might for all endurance and patience with joy.
This is what God does for us when we obey the gospel, when we're baptized into Christ. He has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved Son in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. Colossians 1, 9 through 14. Questions or comments about what we've studied? Good clarity given by the Holy Spirit through Paul we have studied. We have takeaways. We need to be like Paul and Timothy. Now most of what we've studied tonight we've looked at ourselves parallel to the Christians in Colossae. But I want us to take a moment now and think of Paul and Timothy and their attitude toward those Christians and that we need to pray for one another just as Paul and Timothy prayed for them. I spoke to us Sunday morning about serving one another and doing that better. Sermons planned for this year are going to expand on that, specifying various ways we can serve one another. But here's one way, very simple, that all of us can do for one another. Pray for one another. We can serve one another through prayer. Here at Laurel Heights, we maintain what could be called a prayer list, identifying people with their needs and asking that we pray for them. And all of that, all of that has great value. But also, we need to pray for one another that together we be would become better engaged in the Lord's work. We need to pray for one another that together we would grow in Christ and individually we would overcome our weaknesses and shortcomings and move in the direction of God and walk in a manner worthy of Him. That needs to be included in our prayers. We must be a people who are filled with the knowledge of God's will. I worry about people who don't get this. There are people who've been baptized and they just sort of rest on that event. I've been baptized. Preacher, don't come around here and tell me what I need to be doing. I've been baptized. Old brother Robert Turner wrote a poem about that. I'll read to you someday. But that's the way some people are. They'll say, I'm just not a church kind of person. Other folks can keep the local church going. I've been baptized. Well, what about this? Being filled with the knowledge of God's will so that you can walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to Him, bearing fruit in every good work, and increasing in the knowledge of God. All that's about after baptism. That's about what you do after baptism. I worry about these people who are not consistently involved in being filled with the knowledge of God's will. I pray that we can reach them and get them back and lead them to what this passage is teaching that comes after baptism. I've got several others, but I'll pause again. Paul in this passage tells us how to prepare for future adversity 
and crisis. I touched on this earlier. All the work that we do to grow, all the self-examination that we engage in, all the prayers that we pray to the Lord about our spiritual lives, the confessing of our sin, asking for forgiveness and strength, all the study we do, all the reading we do, the listening to sermons, the coming to assemblies, and reviewing what we believe, it is all a joy in itself, but beyond that you're preparing for something in the future that you may not even know is going to hit you. You ever had a crisis and Somebody told you 15 years in advance that it would be there at that day? Generally what happens is crisis and adversity and episodes of strong temptation come into our lives unexpectedly. But instead of sitting around trying to wring our hands and figure out what bad thing we're going to have to encounter in the future, just get ready for whatever might come. By doing what the text says here, being filled with the knowledge of His will. We prepare for future adversity and crisis and temptation that we can't see now by doing what we know we need to do now. To grow and be filled with the knowledge of His will. And then, I want to go back and cover this again. I mentioned it earlier, but it needs to be needs to be repeated. These phrases, every good work in verse 10, for example. Nobody can offer up a lifetime of sufficient work to put God in debt to us. Jesus said we're all unprofitable servants. So we cannot do sufficient work to put God in debt to us where we can stand before God and say, All right, God, you owe me. But our faith in Christ and our love for God should compel us to obedience to the full extent of our present capacity in every good work. Fully pleasing Him captures the idea of fullness. And it really connects well to that word plethora. Fill, fullness, complete, and balance. And what I need to do about my life, and I'll recommend it to you, is go through every good work that God has assigned us to engage in and try to do that to discover where our deficiencies are. It's very easy to say, well, here I'm really good at this. God told me to do this and I'm good at that. So I'm going to put all my attention and focus there. And I'm not really good at this that God told me to do. We need to look all, all, at all of it with very sober, balanced thinking. Where am I deficient? And then put our energy there. So that in every good work we are fully pleasing Him. Think of being well-rounded balanced, consistent service that we offer to God, walking worthy of the Lord. These words and phrases here in Colossians 1, 9 to 14 define how we ought to be living and also assign the benefits. As I mentioned in verse 11, strengthened with all power according to his glorious might for all endurance and patience 
with joy. I've got time for a couple more takeaways. I mentioned this Sunday night that we are kingdom citizens. And remember what that means from that sermon Sunday night if you were here. People who live under the rule of God. That's the kingdom image in the New Testament. People who live under the rule of God. The kingdom. The body of Christ living under the head. The church. Jesus is the head of the church. People who live under the rule of God. I don't know how many there are. I don't know where they're all located. What I know is when people are filled with the knowledge of God's will and they're committed to walking in a manner worthy of Him in every good work fully pleasing Him, they're living under the rule of God. They are kingdom citizens. We need to think of the kingdom in those terms. And then I wanted to mention something that will come up again several times in the Colossian letter. And that's this idea of redemption. I used to, years ago, use an illustration about redemption that doesn't work for young people anymore. Some of you older folks will remember, you go to the grocery store and you'd get gold bond stamps. Or you'd get S&H green stamps. And then you'd go to a place downtown that was called what? Redemption Center. And if you had enough stamps, you could take that fishing rod out of the Redemption Center. Or whatever it was that you wanted. Maybe a kitchen appliance or something. Redemption is a very clear image of God through Christ paying the ransom price whereby we have enough stamps we can get out of the sin store. Redemption or ransom has been paid and we can walk out of that sin that we've lived in. Even if I learned all the will of God and started a new life and kept the will of God flawlessly, I would still need to be pardoned or forgiven of my sin that I committed before I made that commitment. And God does that on the basis of Christ's death when we respond to the gospel. It's going to be described later in the book of Colossians. It's going to be described later in terms of being baptized, buried with Christ in baptism. Colossians 2.12 having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised with him through faith in the powerful working of God who raised him from the dead. The same power that raised Jesus from the dead can take you out of sin when you respond to the gospel and you're buried with Christ in baptism. Well, that's our study tonight in Colossians 1, 9 through 14. And so we are set... Lord willing, on Sunday to continue in Colossians 1, verse 15. There are study pages in the back. If you want to pick up one, you can read a summary of what we will study on Sunday. Thank you very much for your good attention to our study.